This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. In this episode, we conclude our discussion of one of America's most enduring novels of the 20th century. That would be Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, it still seems strange that this book is such a favorite. I mean, it plows unafraid into America's most difficult and divisive challenges like racial injustice and sexism and bigotry and ignorance. And uh, the language is offensive. The topics are heavy. Uh, but everything is explored through the voice of an innocent female narrator recounting events as she understood them as a child. Growing up in the smallest and the most provincial of towns, the fictional town of Macomb, Alabama. So you can't really go there. <laughs> no. So much of it is recollected often in a dreamlike state. And so uh, we begin our discussions in episode one by meeting our author, Miss Nell Harper Lee. Right. Now, uh, let me interrupt you just for a second. I'm not sure we ever discussed Lee's real name. I've been referring to her as Lee or Harper Lee. But all of Harper Lee's family, uh, all of her life, knew her as Nell. That was her first name. That's what her friends called her until the day she died. She got that name from her grandmother, who was named Ellen. Nell is Ellen spelled backwards. Clever. <laughs> when Harper published her book, or Lee published her book, she didn't want to put Nell on the cover because she was worried that it would disintegrate quickly and they would start calling her Nellie, which probably would have actually happened. So she made the point to refer to herself professionally by her middle name, Harper Lee. I like the name Harper, so I'm kind of glad she went that way. Anyway, I know that's a sidebar, but I thought it was worth mentioning. And I would like to point out for our non-Southern listeners uh, that Harper is a surname, and we do that in the South. <laughs> yeah, we do. We give you surnames like that for your middle name. You know, uh, it's very interesting, and, and, and speaking of interesting, we're getting to the end of our discussion, and we've hardly mentioned Truman Capote or the real-life version of Dill. Uh, Christy, do we have time really to say anything about the relationship between uh, Lee and Capote? 
Well, of course we do. And it's kind of a sad story. You know, Lee and Capote were very much Scout and Dill. Both of them uh, spoke publicly about being those two kids. Lee was every bit the tomboy, just like Scout. Capote was not the rough-and-tumble, football-loving, hunter-type southern boy that you would expect. And so, just like Dill, he had trouble fitting into, you know, Monroeville, their little make-em-like society. Later in his life, uh, he would come out as gay, but that's his story for another episode on his life. Uh, Just like uh, they seem to do to Dill, Monroeville treated... uh, Truman as an outsider, and the kids bullied him. Lee defended him, though, vehemently, physically. She beat the snot out of those bullies, even though she was actually younger. Capote's mother had sent uh, Capote to live with an aunt in Monroeville when he was just four years old during her divorce. Basically, she abandoned him. Lee's mother was bipolar and was also a real non-present entity in her life, And so they both considered themselves oddballs, but they were oddballs together in their little community. Lee later said that they were bonded by what she called a common anguish over their childhoods. And they spent their childhoods together, and and they wrote stories, and they were close. So close that for decades, there was a persistent rumor that Capote was the one that wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, or if he didn't write it, he heavily edited it. He, of the two, was the prolific writer. He had a lot of things to his credit. And for generations, this was a rumor. However, about a decade ago, a letter surfaced that Capote had written to his aunt. And the letter was dated July 9th, 1959. And that letter pretty much put to rest the rumors. He tells his aunt all about Lee's book, how much he liked it, uh, But beyond the letters, there have been a lot, now that we have the technology to do these things, um, computer scans with algorithms that would do text analysis, and they compare the textuality of Watchmen with Mockingbird, and then again with Capote's work. And so there is some sort of definitive certainty. Uh, The issue basically has been decided. Not very many, if any, I don't know of a single serious scholar anywhere in the world that seriously believes that Capote wrote Mockingbird. Anecdotally, there's been a lot of people that have said some funny things, people that were close to both of them. The best one, you know, kind of suggesting that Capote was such a big mouth. If he had written To Kill a Mockingbird, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, there is no way (laughs) that he could have kept that secret and taken it to the grave. So it's an interesting conspiracy theory, but no, it's a big fat (laughs) (laughs) no-go. Well, beyond the conspiracy theory, um, is there anything worth noting about the relationship that bears on the story? I mean, uh, you said it's kind of a sad story, but so far, that wasn't sad. No, the sad part is the fact that the relationship fractured. I mean, Alice said it better than anyone when she was talking about this situation. And she basically said, well, she did say, let me quote her. Truman became very jealous because Nell Harper got a Pulitzer and he did not. Of course, we'll have to take Alice's word on that. But anyone who can mildly observe how they live their lives can tell that their lifestyles were just wildly different. They went to both to New York, but he lived a very different life than Lee. Capote did help her get situated. He introduced her to people, but she wasn't the partier that he was. They stayed close for a while, and after Lee finished writing To Kill a Mockingbird and sent it to press, 
Capote asked her to help him on his idea for his book. There'd been a murder of a wealthy family in Kansas, and he wanted to investigate it and write about it. Lee had studied law. She knew about criminal law and was very familiar with the kind of things that you would have to do. So she took Capote up on his offer. He hired her. She went out to Holcomb, Kansas, spent hours researching and writing for Capote's book. She composed over 150 pages of notes. She even wrote an anonymous letter praising the local detective in the case, and it was published in the journal for the FBI. The rupture can be traced to when Lee's book came out and became so successful. Capote really was jealous, and and they couldn't really maintain a relationship after that. Lee uh, later had several harsh things to say about her friend. The first was, and let me quote her, I was his oldest friend, and I did something Truman could not forgive. I wrote a novel that sold. He nursed that for more than 20 years. The second thing that she said, you know, she just basically said, he's an incessant liar. And of course, this is something that we see in the character of Dill. In chapter five in Mockingbird, Lee says this, Dill Harris could tell the biggest ones I ever heard. And of course, that's who Capote was. Lee said this about Capote. I don't know if you know this about him, but his compulsive line was like this. If you said, did you know JFK was shot? He'd easily answer, yes, I was riding in the car uh, when it happened. So finally, after all the work she did on his book, it offended her that he altered so many of the facts to the point that, you know, Truman's book was really a book of semi-fiction. Also, when he published it, and it did become successful in Cold Blood, he never acknowledged her contributions, but instead, in the acknowledgments, gave the shout-out to his lover at the time. So that's the sad ending of this Dylan Scout story. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, that is sad. And it's an interesting uh, meshing of her personal history into her book, Uh, But, you know, getting back to the book, let's remember that in the second episode, we basically talked about part one, uh, those innocent childhood days that were reminiscent of her time with Capote. And we uh, talked about the motifs of education and ignorance that she threads into the story uh, from her first meeting with Dill and his declaration that he can read uh, to her getting fussed at for reading in school. I mean, Lee illustrated man's need for hierarchies, and we watched her carefully work these motifs in her story about dogs and snowmen and men and old drugged-out women and the ghost-like neighbor setting up the universal themes um, that inform her understanding, really, of the racial injustice that she exposes us to in the next part of the book, in part two. In part one, Lee introduces a struggling community, a diseased community, to use Atticus's words, and but uh, one that feels very much like an Eden to an innocent little girl narrator. In part two, Lee crushes this innocence as she exposes the deep-seated racism of the American South in the first half of the 20th century. You know, the causes are universal, but uh, the expression of man's inhumanity to man is, in the particulars, of a very small microcosm of humanity, and it is exposed so thoroughly that a child can see it and express its hideous and you know really deadly nature. In episode three, we went with Lee deep into the racial injustice of the 1930s and through the 1950s. We talked about the particular events in history that informed Lee's understanding of the world at large, but you know more specifically the rural, segregated, and very religious communities of the American South. 
Yes, and so now we will circle back to the big ideas and symbols that were so important to Lee. It's interesting that Lee doesn't conclude her story with the trial. I mean, she certainly could have. The tragedy of Tom Robinson's death would have made it an incredible denouement. The climatic pronouncement of the guilty verdict seems like the point of no return, and of course, in many ways it is, but it is not where Lee finishes her story. Racial injustice is not the conclusion for Scout or Jim or Makeham. There's more. I think it's important to note, especially as we wrap up the ending, and you've already brought this out, but it's important to remember that Lee was trained as a lawyer. If you think about all the legal language she employs, it seems obvious, really, that this book was written by a burgeoning lawyer. Of course, everything Atticus says sounds exactly like a lawyer talking, but it's not just that. This is a book concerned about the role of law, a book about justice and the role of justice. Lee's father, who in some ways really is the model for Atticus, was a lawyer, as was Alice, her sister. Uh, Lee would have been if it hadn't been for the writing bug that got a hold of her. If you dig into the research on this book, which we have done, As we prepared the podcast, I was surprised to see that the best critical articles written about this novel in any kind of scholarly way are not written by literary critics at all, but they're written by lawyers. In my field of literary criticism, that's very unusual. I was interested to see that there are many, at least several law professors that actually use To Kill a Mockingbird in their classrooms as a textbook as they introduce the topic of legal morality. (laughs) Legal morality, huh? You know, some would say that sounds a little bit like a Nazi moron. <laughs> I know. And and that may be why lawyers like the book. I mean, Atticus does seem to redeem the, a profession that's often berated. Atticus is a man of integrity. He flies in the face of the narrow stereotype that, you know, all lawyers are ambulance chasing money, grummers. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that's about lawyers. I'm just going to say that's the, the cliche. But... I claimed at the beginning of the series that this story is not about Atticus. It's a story about children growing up. And of course it is. It's exactly what it is. But I should qualify that statement because that's not how Lee defines her book at all. When she was asked to find her book, she said this, To Kill a Mockingbird is a love story, plain and simple. Of course, every novel of note is more than one thing. And there are several different ways that this is a love story. I mean, this is a a story about family love, brotherly love, friendship, the love of one's community, the love of one's fellow man. And we can flesh those out. We can argue that they're all kind of interconnected and the reason people love the book. The most famous symbol associated with the book is, of course, the mockingbird. And it connects into this love narrative that's embedded in almost every line of a grown woman as she recollects her formal self as a little girl growing up in an Eden created for her by a father that she clearly idealizes, a father who preserved her innocence until he could no longer shield her from reality. He kept her from bitterness as best he could, and he raised her in a mental space that insulated her from the disease that infected the world around her. Her Garden of Eden illusion came crashing down, not just during the trial of Tom Robinson, 
But in the aftermath of that trial, as she was forced to stare into the bigotry and the indefensible and undeniable racial injustice, not just of Bob Yule, but of the entire town that protected him, Makem is diseased. And it isn't just the rural poor from the trash heap or the ignorant farmers in the country. It's also the self-righteous, high-minded, church-attending, well-dressed, and well-bred, finger-pointing missionary society ladies. They are no better. The town folk, who to- they don't take their citizenship seriously enough to even be members of juries. They're no better. The teachers in her school who quote founding fathers and defend so-called righteous wars, they're not any better. The only one who does not fall from grace and scouts eyes is her daddy. That's the central love story of the text. Atticus Finch, now I keep reminding you every episode, is a fictional man of the 1930s. And the reason I keep bringing this up is that he has been criticized in our day by standards that were unheard of in the 1930s or the 50s. But for all of his blind spots, and there is a ton of literature that highlights Atticus's blind spots, and in fact, that's mostly what you find, we shouldn't lose sight of Lee's main point. This is a man who, against the mores of his day, political expediency, his community, and even his own family, stood up alone for the life of a person he did not know in a community who said that person was of little value. He didn't have to, and everyone knew he didn't have to. Most didn't even understand why he would do it. He wasn't a crusader. He wasn't a civil rights activist. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a prophet of any kind. The reason he gives when Scout asked him in chapter 9, and I want to quote him here, The main one is, if I didn't, I couldn't hold up my head in town. I couldn't represent this county in the legislature. I couldn't even tell you or Jim not to do something again. At the end of the book, Arthur Radley kills Bob Yule and Atticus believes Jim did it. He expresses to the sheriff that he wants Jim to go to court and face the responsibility for what happened. Mr. Tate, who knows more about what happened than Atticus does, tries to talk him down. But Atticus interrupts Tate. Read for me, uh, if you don't mind, the quote. What does Atticus say? Heck, if this thing's hushed, it'll be a simple denial to Jim of the way I've tried to raise him. Sometimes I think I'm a total failure as a parent, but I'm all they got. Before Jim looks at anyone else, he looks at me. And I've tried to live so I can look squarely back at him. If I connived at something like this, frankly, I couldn't meet his eye. And the day I can't do that, I'll know I've lost him. I don't want to lose him and Scout because they're all I've got. You know, it's an interesting way of expressing his reasons. I mean, those reasons aren't patriotic. They're personal. Atticus is a man who wants to live a consistent life. Maybe lawyers like Atticus, uh, because by nature of the profession, they are often in similar ethically difficult positions over the course of their careers. I mean, how, how do you measure, measure justice to law? And, you know, how do you follow the law when legal maneuverings may lead to something that you personally think is unjust? And I read an article written by a, a lawyer, nonetheless, that pointed out that Atticus's desire to be a gentleman, as he called it, actually got in the way of defending Tom Robinson. The law article said a real rigorous defense of Tom Robinson would have necessitated exposing the uh, violent sexual and physical abuse of Mayella by her father. 
he went way too easy on the Yules, and there's a sense that Atticus failed Tom Robinson in that regard. Uh, well, if you put it that way, you know, that's probably true. And I guess those are difficult decisions lawyers are always having to make. I told you the literature is hard on Atticus. <laughs> but the larger point, and the one that Lee makes multiple times, is that Atticus Finch pursues to live an integrated life. By that I mean Lee does everything she can to demonstrate that Atticus is not hypocritical. And most of us are hypocritical, either because we choose to be on purpose or we have blind spots. And these blind spots make us so. Atticus aims to be consistent in all areas of his life as best he can. Miss Maudie describes him like this. Atticus Finch is the same in the house as he is on the public streets. And that, we find out in part two, is something we can't say about almost any other character in this story, possibly with the exception of Miss Maudie, but not even Scout can claim that. Everyone, for better or worse, is either living a double life or they're living by double standards. You know, integrity is an interesting word, and it's really an interesting concept. Um, first of all, we all admire it innately. We can spot it. Uh, even children have a keen uh, internal sense of people who are living their truth, and they have just a visceral hatred of hypocrisy and people living inconsistent lives. But, you know, integrity is an easy uh, even if you are as honest with yourself as you possibly can be, uh, there's a natural tension in our relationships with, with other people. Um, there's a Jesuit theologian named James Keenan. He tells us that there are four components to living a life of integrity. Uh, knowing how to judge these is what he calls prudence. And uh, thinking about this book uh, is a book about integrity is interesting for all the characters, but especially when we look at the hero, Atticus. Um the first component of integrity is having a sense of justice, and justice demands that the welfare and rights of others be recognized. It's about equality, and it's about fairness, and this is deeply embedded in Atticus's professional life. Uh, it's embedded in the American founding documents, like the ones that he references during the trial. He says in that statement, uh, which we read last, last episode, that for him, these are not ideas. They are things he applies in everyday life. And so, uh, as a man of power, he seeks to serve all, everybody equally. And the story demonstrates that is exactly how he lives his life. And he serves the morphine addict who badmouths him to his children. And Atticus serves the Cunninghams uh, who can only pay him and cut timber. He serves at the state legislature so seriously that they make a cartoon about him in the paper. And, of course, he serves the African-American community, treating him with equal respect. And uh, it's for this reason they stand for him as he walks out of the courtroom, even though he lost the case. And uh, Miss Motti, at the end of the book, says this, Whether Makem knows it or not, we're paying him the highest tribute we can pay to a man. We trust him to do right. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, the town, even if it is just intuitively, it, it knows and trusts Atticus's deep need to pursue justice. And so they do take the cowardly road, knowing that he's going to do the difficult thing, he, but it's going to be the right thing, and they don't have to. I mean, when Atticus defends his decision to defend Tom Robinson uh, to Scout, he explains it to her like this. Scout... It's not fair to you and Jim, I know that. 
But sometimes we have to make the best of things, and the way we conduct ourselves when the chips are down, well, all I can say is, when you and Jim are grown, maybe you'll look back on this with some compassion and some feeling that I didn't let you down. This case, Tom Robinson's case, is something that goes to the essence of a man's conscience. Scout, I couldn't go to church and worship God if I didn't try to help that man. Before I can live with other folks, I've got to live with myself. The one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's conscience. You know, in other words, uh, I've got to be a whole integrated person, and this is what I do for myself and for you as my child. That's a pretty lofty statement. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up that quote because I was going to, if you didn't, you know, in the beginning of the book, Lee makes such a big deal out of that educator John Dewey, and I made fun of him when we talked about him. I'll admit it. But John Dewey, if you don't agree with any of his teaching methods, you have to agree with the idea that he says that, and because we know this by experience, parents know this, that kids learn by doing and they learn by watching what we do. They don't learn by listening to what we say. And in this case, both Scout and Jim love their daddy, but they also admire him. They don't want to disappoint him. And that is different than just loving a parent because that's your parent. After that jury convicts Tom Robinson, Scout says it was Jim's turn to cry. He goes home and asks his dad how something like that could happen. Attica says, I don't know, son, but they did it. They've done it before, and they did it tonight, and they'll do it again. And why they do, it seems only children weep. Atticus is going to go on to say that uh, Jim couldn't have done it, and boys like Jim couldn't have done it. I mean... You know, what does he mean by that? You know, he means uh, men and women who are determined to have integrity couldn't do it. Uh, Men who can see beyond the hypocrisy uh, of the emotion of the mob. I mean, men and women who choose to live lives of consistency couldn't do this. And, you know, that's an important point Lee seems to be making in the text as a whole. And perhaps that's what she wants to accomplish with her book. You know, the whole experience of watching Makem display this inconsistency wakes Jim up. He describes it almost like that. He says this, It's like being in a caterpillar in a cocoon. That's what it is. Like something asleep wrapped up in a warm place. I always thought Makem folks were the best folks in the world. At least that's why they seem like, or that, that's what they seem like. You know, Jim's innocence is absolutely shattered. He sees the ugliness he didn't even know existed in his community. He sees the hypocrisy. And, of course, Scout, you know, she sees it, too. She sees it more slowly, but it becomes very obvious to her, especially in that missionary society meeting. The women who meet in Atticus's own home speak ill of him in front of his sister. They speak ill of Tom Robinson in front of his african-american housekeeper who's taking care of them and is a dear friend and they speak slanderously in front of scout they even make fun of her they degrade people in africa and the way of life of the people there they speak terribly about helen robinson so much so that scout mistakenly assumes they're talking about mayella and they do all of this while eating cake (laughs) I'd say that Lee does not give women a pass in this book. You know, Scout says more than once that men are better than women. I know that offends your sensitivities. (laughs) It does. Part of it is that they they have more power, but another part of it is this 
passive aggressiveness that she witnesses at the Missionary Society meeting. I mean, never mind it was all done in the name of God, which makes it, you know, that much worse. I know. And and if that missionary meeting wasn't enough, there's one more thing that really puts Scout over the top. Scout confronts Jim about her teacher that he had uh, when he was in her grade. And let, let's look at that part. Well, she went on today about how bad it was him treating the Jews like that. Jim, it's not right to persecute anybody, is it? I mean, have mean thoughts about anybody even, is it? Gracious, no, Scout. What's eating you? Well, coming out of the courthouse that night, Miss Gates was, she was going down the steps in front of us. You must have not seen her. She was walking with Miss Stephanie Crawford. I heard her say, it's time somebody taught him a lesson. They were getting away above themselves, and the next thing they think they can do is marry us. Jim, how can you hate Hitler so bad and then turn around and be ugly about folks right at home? Jim was suddenly furious. He leaped off the bed, grabbed me by the collar, and shook me. I never want to hear about that courthouse again. Ever, ever. You hear me? You hear me? Don't you ever say one word to me about it again. You hear? Now go on. I was too surprised to cry. I crept from Jim's room and shut the door softly, lest undue noise set him off again. Suddenly tired, I wanted Atticus. He was in the living room, and I went to him and tried to get in his lap. Atticus smiled. You're getting so big now, I'll just have to hold a part of you. He held me close. Scout, he said softly, don't let Jim get you down. He's having a rough time these days. I heard you back there. Atticus said that Jim was trying hard to forget something, but what he was really doing was storing it away for a while until enough time passed. Then he would be able to think about it and sort things out. When he was able to think about it, Jim would be himself again. You know, it bothers her that her teacher had talked to them about the evils of Hitler and totalitarianism and extols the virtues of democracy. But all this is in theory. And in her everyday life, she practices none of that. She has no integrity. She's not whole. Scout doesn't know what to do with all that hypocrisy. She never even knew it existed. And Jim, he can't even talk about it. He's that upset. He cannot reconcile the world of his childhood with this bigoted world of hypocrisy. Which leads me to the other side of justice, maybe a higher side. Um, Justice is knowing how to arbitrate power fairly. And we all have power over others at, at some point in our lives. And Atticus is not a legalist when it comes to the legal codes of Alabama, and he never has been. Atticus tells Scout to turn a blind eye to Bob Ewell's poaching because if the community didn't let him hunt out of season, his children would have nothing to eat. And, uh, even though he struggles at the end with what to do with the death of Bob Ewell, one of the principles we see throughout is his deeply held belief that it is a sin to kill a mockingbird. And when he's asked to explain what that means... What he means, uh, what he says, it is the God-given duty, not man-given. You know, he's using biblical language, the language of of higher law. Anyway, it is the God-given duty to defend the weak and the helpless. And uh, it's eventually this argument that Hectate uses to explain to Atticus uh, that even if Atticus fights him on this, he will not prosecute Arthur Radley for the murder of Bob Ewell, and he can view it as just. It is using my power to execute fairness. Woo, that's getting into some sticky ethical territory, isn't it? 
Very much so. And uh, there are arguments to be made whether Atticus and Hectate did the right thing in this situation. Um, it's why Atticus struggles with this ethical double bind so much. And it brings me uh, back to the Jesuit James Keenan's uh, understanding of virtue for justice. It's one big part of integrity, but it's not the only part. There's another dimension, and that is the ethical dimension of what he terms fidelity. Uh, we have a duty to our fellow man to treat people justly, but we have a duty to those with whom we have special relationships with to be faithful, our friends, our family, uh, our community. If man, and you know, and I use that word generically in the sense of mankind, but if man is anything in this world, he is relational. We are in relationships, and we cannot exist outside of relationships. And we have a, a sacred duty to those with whom we are in special relationships to treat them specially. If I go uh, to visit my child at school on his birthday, it's, it's not the expectation that I bring treats for all the kids in the class. I mean, if I say I brought a special lunch for my son, it's understood. He's my son. We have a special relationship, and I have a special duty towards this relationship, and I must be faithful to that. Uh, you know, but there is a natural tension in balancing those things. And when does the needs of the greater group outweigh the needs of those I'm closest to and vice versa? So every culture answers this differently, even within, um, you know, the microcultures of a single country or people group. And it's so amazing that Harper Lee is bringing out this much nuance. Well, it, it really is. You know, Atticus uniquely is a single dad and he struggles with that. He plays and he reads to Jim and Scout. He extends grace and tolerance to his sister, even though he disagrees with her values in deep ways. His fidelity extends to Calpurnia and he defends her place as an honored member of his household to other members of his household uh, and even to his sister. He does everything in his power to help his children not to develop grudges to the other members of their community. He's constantly reminding them to try to walk in their shoes as best they can. He takes care of this rotten, morphine-addicted neighbor. Don't forget that. And at the end of the book, this will be his reason for protecting Boo Radley. Uh, he is not being inconsistent to his understandings of justice and fairness. He is uh, prudently, if I'm going to use that word, balancing his sense of justice with a sense of fidelity. And that brings us to the final element of integrity. And uh, that is a third thing we see in the character of Atticus. Uh, we have a duty to all justice, a duty to our community, but we also have a duty to take care of ourselves uh, sometimes, especially if we are really trying to be good people, that's the hardest one of all. Atticus does seem to struggle with this, but Lee uh, has drawn for us a, a character who does really does not, who does attempt to take care of himself. And uh, notice the details she includes that seem kind of arbitrary. He walks regularly instead of driving for exercise. He sits by himself at church and not with his family so he can align himself spiritually. But, you know, most distinctively, we see that he takes time to read. Uh, if you remember, uh, as the children grow older, they decide, and I quote, it is generous to allow Atticus 30 minutes to himself after supper. <laughs> Reading is where Atticus finds his center and he orients his life. I mean, Scout says this at one point. 
I sometimes think Atticus subjected every crisis of his life to tranquil evaluation behind the Mobile Register, the Birmingham News, and the Montgomery Advertiser. <laughs> All this reading has helped Atticus keep his sanity, uh, but it, you know it's also helped him find his his self identity. It frustrates Jim, but Atticus doesn't need to play football or shoot a gun to be firmed as an individual. Um, he doesn't need dominance to do this. And, He's confident in his essence, and you know that comes from the security that he's finding in his personal identity. Uh, it expresses itself in his ability to be calm and to be able to stand firm under the extreme pressure we see this community put on him. Uh, his confidence doesn't come from them, you know. So when it gets difficult, he can stand alone. Well, let me point out that the very opposite of him. If you want to see the antithesis, look at Bob Yule where Atticus refuses to carry a weapon and has never laid a hand on his children. Bob Ewell poaches on public lands, abuses his own children, and tries to murder Jim and Scout. Where Atticus treats everyone equally, Bob Ewell tries his best to prove he's better than the man who lives down the road. Where Atticus acts non-emotionally and rationally, even graciously, Bob Yule only acts from places of extreme emotion, aggressively, ragefully, and vengefully. And of course, this results in the obvious contrast in their two daughters, both raised by single dads, both living outside, really, of their respected communities with few friends, but they both end in very different places. As we navigate our way towards the end of the book, all of these contrasts stand out to Jim, but they also stand out to Scout. And one interesting motif, and I haven't brought this out yet, even though I've talked a whole lot about motifs, uh, but it's something to think about. Notice how many times Lee puts Scout to sleep in this book. She's always falling asleep. Chapter 21, she wavers between consciousness and unconsciousness in the evening of the mob. She falls asleep during the trial. She's unconscious during Bob Ewell's attack. She falls asleep in her father's lap more than once. But if you think of sleep as an archetype, and we often do in literature, it is an archetype. Sleep suggests a loss of personal awareness or a state where healing can occur, which brings us back to the mockingbird. The mockingbird is Lee's symbol for innocence, for sure. It's a symbol for the weak, the people to protect, those to protect, for sure. But there's another interesting feature. Why did she pick the mockingbird? Mockingbirds imitate others. They do it, that's their way to survive, their defense mechanism. How interesting, because there's a lot of characters that are mockingbirds in that sense as well. Of course, Dolphus Raymond mimics being drunk in order to survive. Calpurnia has to mimic a special way of talking in two worlds to survive. But even Scout mimics being a special kind of lady when she has to intermingle with the women at the Missionary League. Mockingbirds mimic because they're not strong enough on their own and they cannot protect themselves any other way. It's just another layer of meaning that I think is really interesting when you think about the phrase, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. Which is brilliant, <laughs> I might add, to sum it all up like that. You know, uh, Well, in a book about integrity, which I defined earlier as meaning justice and fidelity and self-care, I guess uh, Lee would say the last virtue to include would be empathy. I think so. 
Lee ends her book with Scout going to sleep again. Scout is willing herself to stay awake, but the rain is soft, the room is warm, her father's voice so deep that she falls asleep into that loss of personal awareness and hopefully into a state of healing. Atticus has been reading to her from a book titled The Gray Ghost. This is the book that Dill had left behind in their house. Scout goes to sleep, mumbling something about how the villain in the book is just mis- misunderstood. She says, he was real nice. To which her father says, most people are, Scout, when you finally see them. And maybe that is Lee's message to us all. Be men and women of integrity. Hold up the banner of justice, fidelity, self-care. But never forget, even though we can never fully understand the experiences of another, we can never walk in the skin of another, we can try to do our best to walk in their shoes. You know, she never sounds like she's fussing at us. She kind of just lulls us really to sleep too, to be honest. But her message to the world is certainly a reminder for every generation to every people group at every age. Indeed. What a great story. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this final discussion of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, Next week, in honor of Halloween and the Day of the Dead, we will be revisiting our Edgar Allan Poe episodes. Those are spooky and fun. (laughs) After that, we will look at the poetry of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, one of America's greatest poets. As always, uh, please share this or any of our episodes with a friend via text, email, or social media. Send us a picture of you uh, listening to the podcast or wearing our merch. We've had some fans do that. That's always fun. We'd love to post it to our social media, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Post it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Anyway, visit our website. Check all that out, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Peace out. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.